Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast and I'm your host Scott Wiley and today we're going to be talking about Choi Hawks, Time and Tide. We are joined once again by Michael Scott and we had a great time talking about this particular film. We get into a lot of stuff and we also go off topic a couple of times but surprisingly, not like the last time that Mike was on, Most of our conversation is pretty much kept to stuff to do with the film, or at least the filmmaking, because let's face it, Choi Hawk does have a bit of a style, he likes to do his own thing, and this film has a few weird aspects to it that we kind of work through as we're having a conversation with each other, and you will notice that there are a couple of occasions where Mike uh kind of clarifies a few things that I was a bit confused on but I also picked up on some stuff that Mike hadn't uh, considered so we actually do a pretty good job of uh, giving each other new insight uh even if it's only about a couple of things but I think if we can give each other new insight and if we can give each other some interesting things to think about you guys are probably going to find a lot of stuff to go away and think about or maybe you won't I don't know I'm not your dad you do what you want This episode was recorded before, well, it was recorded quite a while ago, actually, but this is the last one before I went away uh, for what has ended up being quite a while uh, to various places on holiday and had people over to stay. So uh, some of the stuff that I say in this episode is uh, dated. For example, there is a point where I'm going to talk about a film's release date uh, as the middle of May. When this comes out, it will be the 6th of June. So yeah. We are actually at a point now where you might start hearing much more recent recordings. It depends how many I get done in a short space of time. But as it stands, you've actually kind of caught up with me, or I've caught up with myself, however you want to look at it. So at the end, I will tell you what's going to happen next, as always. So stick around till then. But I'm going to throw you over to myself and Mike. We had an absolute blast talking about this film. I'm not going to give you too much of an intro, because in all honesty... Uh, you'll, you'll see as we go on that we do kind of cover it. We go all over the place. We don't approach this as a start to finish, but I think you'll get everything that's really needed. So just go straight into it and I'll see you at the end. And today we're going to be welcoming Mike Scott back to the show You may remember him all the way back when we started and we chatted about Spider-Man No Way Home and Hydra. But if you haven't listened to those episodes, if you're just tuning in because you want to hear two random people talk about time and tide, introduce yourself, Mike, to the people who maybe don't know who you are. Hi, Scott. I am uh, Mike Scott. I'm the host of Action for Everyone alongside Liam O'Donnell and Vice Victus. Uh, We drop typically every Sunday where we talk about action movies. Very similar to this, but in a more, we do a more current uh, events type format where we talk about news and trailers and 
what you know we try and see what the big movies in the theater uh, are and stuff like that like at the point we were we're recording this the last episode we did we talked about the northmen and then we used that as a springboard to talk about you know some of our favorite like underseen barbarian movies and stuff like that which is why i haven't listened to it because i haven't seen the northmen and i really want to <laughs> i hadn't seen it either so i didn't have a whole lot to contribute for that I, i'm pretty silent for the first like 40 minutes of that episode oh fair enough <laughs> but yes if you aren't listening to action for everyone uh, you should be, provided that you can keep up with them, that it's a really good listen. And, you know, if you uh, like Scott Adkins films, there's quite a lot of backlog to listen to. So uh, go go have fun. Yeah, absolutely. We have a good time. We we enjoy it. So uh, check us out if you haven't already. And it's hard for me to imagine that there's people that listen to this that don't listen to us. But in case there is, check us out. Absolutely. Well, I got an email this morning telling me that uh, I, I am... Very, very popular in Severina, wherever that is. It's a republic somewhere in Africa, I'm, I'm reliably informed. That's awesome. I remember when I first started, uh, I was like the number one podcast in uh, some small country as well. And I was like, I'm very, very cool now. I feel very, I feel very special. <laughs> yes. So if you're one of those people listening, uh, shout out to you guys. Thank you very much. And uh, go listen to uh, Action for Everyone. Who at some point your co-hosts will be on this show, but man, their diaries are a nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. Today we're going to be talking about Choi Hawk's Time and Tide. The film stars Nicholas Z, which was weird for me because the last time I saw him was in Raging Fire with Donnie Yen. And obviously in this, he's like 20 years younger. So it was like, oh, look at the wee baby. <laughs> and he's the good guy, sort of, which is even weirder. Yeah, yeah, that was actually, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But the first time I saw this movie was in 2000. And um, I actually kind of, I didn't like it a ton then. Uh, because so I was coming off of uh, Gen X Cops, where I was man crushing hard on Nixie because he is uh, <clears throat> just like the epitome of cool in that movie. And I was kind of unprepared for the character that he plays in this, which obviously will we'll break down a bit. But yeah, now, obviously, 20 years later, I've seen how much more varied he is as an actor. And so I'm much more, it was much easier for me to just take in that he's playing uh, not this character that I was expecting him to be based on his previous work in 2000. Yeah. Um, I don't remember when I saw this film, unfortunately, it's not one that it's one of those films that it must've been on television. So I, I can't even tell you if my version was edited because it probably was, if it was on TV, but it's not one that I had access to rewatch. Uh, I distinctly remember it was just something that I watched once and certain bits of it stayed with me. And it, and I think it might have been the first time I saw Nicholas C because I hadn't seen Gen X at that point. I, def I, I saw this first and then I remember seeing Gen X around the same time that New Police Story came out. Um, I just I remember that I think we must have bought them on DVD or something at the same time because I remember that specifically in my head of having both of those DVDs. Um, and yeah, so for me, it was the other way around. I went from this guy that was a bit unlikable to, oh, he can be very likable. <laughs> but yeah. um, rewatching it today, because I watched it this morning, was a bit of a weird experience because uh, you saying that you didn't like it 20 years ago is interesting. Was it him you didn't like or was it the film as a whole that you didn't like out of curiosity? 
I think it was a little bit of I think it was a little bit of both. Um, it was, you know, there's a, the big part of it was him uh, because uh, I just wasn't expecting him to be the utter douche nozzle that he is in this movie. I mean, he's just he's an awful, pretty awful human being in this movie. And uh, and so it was it was part of that because I expected him to be more the like uh, cool action hero that he was in Gen X Cops. And he's far from that in this. And, you know, and actually Wu Bai gets gets, you know, all the cool action stuff. Yeah. Um, and also the movie, the movie was a little interesting because it was it was Choi Hawk's return to Hong Kong after double team and knockoff. And uh it's a it's a weird movie in terms of narrative flow and structure and stuff like that which at the time i as much as i was a hong kong movie fan back then i didn't quite have the full appreciation of the uh utter madman that Choi hawk is uh because i you know to me he this was the guy that made once upon a time in china not the guy that would go on to make black mask 2 you know and they are the, <laughs> they are the same director and 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 i appreciate all of those movies for the most part i mean i'm one of black mask 2's few defenders uh but i don't you know i would never argue that black mask 2 is a good movie by any stretch of the imagination it is the product of a madman i like it because it's the product of a madman and this is when he's in a bit of his it's a it's it's interesting because it's a fairly conventional story but done in his madman style and in 2000 it was a little bit of a I didn't dislike the movie. I guess I, sh- I I overspoke. I didn't dislike the movie. I just thought it was um thought it was a little a little slight for for Choi Hawk, you know, um a little little bit of a just a okay, is he just kind of getting his feet back in the water now that he's back in Hong Kong because it didn't even have it has some some craziness, but it didn't have the craziness of knockoff. It wasn't the mo- you know just this yeah. over the top ridiculous thing that knockoff was. Uh, but it also didn't have the elegance of something like The Blade. And so it was kind of just this, it was an interesting movie to see him make. Um, now, 20 years later, it feels much more uh, like a, a part of his filmography. Like it makes much more sense in in his overall filmography. And so I think because of that, I, I'm able to enjoy it a lot more now uh, to the point that I enjoy it, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but it, it definitely... Uh, at the time, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Yeah, um, I'm. I know what what I make of it, but rewatching it for the first time in a very long time, I must admit that um, if if you were to ask me what my gut reaction up until the end, when everything just goes crazy, it's it would be confusion because <laughs> you, you what you were saying about the the narrative dissonance and the flow not being great uh i would apply all of that to the action scenes as well there were multiple times when i was like did my disc just skip like i haven't had that happen for years but i swear there was something happening and then all of a sudden it just wasn't it it just froze and uh no the disc wasn't skipping that's how it is by design <laughs> and that takes some adjustment especially when like you said, 20 years later, we live in a world where the standard of action is either the raid or John Wick, and everybody is expecting, you know, this by the numbers standard, this is how you do action now. Everybody else does this, they adapt or they die. And this film is like, nope, I don't care about any of that. I mean, maybe it hadn't happened yet, but even by the standards of the day, nope, don't care about any of that. I'm doing this my way. And 
some of the shots, especially in the action, is like, that was really cool, followed by, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like some of it really works really well, and some of it you're going, okay, I see what you were doing, but that didn't stand up. <laughs> So much of so much of of Choi Hawk at this point is uh, to use, you know, the common popular term that the kids say now is about the vibe. Right. He's all about the vibes at this point in his career. You know, if you look at his movies now, his big budget mainland movies that he's making, they're much more conventional, like the Detective D movies and taking Tiger Mountain. They're 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 much more conventional. They're still they've still got his incredibly elaborate creative camera work and all of that sort of stuff. But they're much more conventional. But this period is is really an interesting period for him because he's just he's just he's making these movies up as he goes along you know i mean it's not uncommon it wasn't uncommon in hong kong for them to to shoot movies without scripts yeah yeah but i mean really shooting movies without scripts you know black mask 2 there literally was no script uh they they made that they made that movie up as they were shooting it um you know this one i know there was a script uh but they rewrote it all the time as they were filming and cut out scenes and changed characters and did all sorts of stuff because Choi Hawk basically kind of fell in love with Wu Bai. And so once he, (laughs) he, uh, he like, he was so enamored with him as a screen presence that he completely rewrote the script, really cut down Nick C's part uh, and, and stuff to, to elevate uh, Wu Bai's character, Jack. And uh, and so, again, you do get this very chaotic sort of thing, but that's really, you know, what he's doing at this time. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, you're looking at you can kind of start with basically knockoff. Uh, well, double team has it a little bit, uh, but then knockoff, then this, then The Legend of Zoo, which I think is his worst movie by uh, a mile, then um, Black Mask 2. They're all and even to a certain extent, Seven Swords, which was sort of considered a bit of his comeback movie. Uh, I, all, I, I really like Seven Swords. That one was one that really did it for me. I like Seven Swords a lot, too. I, I think that's a tremendous movie. Um, but they're all much more focused on vibes and feelings and and his ingenuity and creativity than they are any type of narrative coherence. Because as much as I like Seven Swords, that movie is barely coherent as well. Um, you know, hundred oh, <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so this is just a time in in Choi Hawk's career where narrative just doesn't interest him, and and flow, and 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 you know all these sort of because he was such a master. You know, it's it's that old adage: you've got to know the rules in order to break them. And he is he is such a master. He's such a consummate professional of a filmmaker. I mean, this guy could make the most uh, mainstream, straightforward, technically proficient movie you want. Uh, you know, I mean, he's called the the Hong Kong Steven Spielberg for a reason. And this was a period in his career where he just didn't seem interested in doing that. He seemed interested in experimenting and uh kind of just having fun and it doesn't always make it the best for the viewer but if you can kind of get on the wavelength and get on the vibe then i think there's a lot of fun and a lot of entertainment to be had in this in this period you were just looking for excuses to just keep saying the word vibe there weren't you i was bring bring the youth bring the youth (laughs) yeah no it's funny actually because um 
I had forgotten that Seven Swords was around about this time period. Because I remember watching that when it came out. That was one of the few subtitled films that my mum and stepdad watched with me. Like, they actually bought it and wanted to watch it. Um, I didn't know, even know at that point it was a Troy Hawk film. Uh, I did, because obviously it said on the front cover. And I was like, oh, I know that guy. And uh, I was like, yeah, we, we can watch that. And I think for me... Again, I'm going off of memory because I haven't rewatched Seven Swords for a while. I might rewatch it and feel differently, but I definitely could get on board with the vibe of that film. But I think a big reason why is because it wasn't trying to be set in the modern day world. The fact that it had a fantasy setting really helped the fact that mm, it just went off the rails. <laughs> Whereas I think with this film, it has moments and it, and it starts, in my opinion, grounded and then all of a sudden just decides, I no longer wish to be grounded. Come along with me on this journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely fair, you know, and, and a lot of people I know when knockoff came out, a lot of people had a, a big problem with that with knockoff because knockoff is also ostensibly a grounded movie. Right. But it's ridiculous. I mean, it's even more ridiculous than this one. Um, you got exploding jeans and stuff in that movie, you know, um, <laughs> And and I know I know Choi Hawk had a really bad experience on knockoff. Um, and so I know there's there's part of it because there's a lot of things, you know, if you remember the end of knockoff, it involves Van Damme like sliding around on that boat and 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 how many of the action scenes in this involve Jack sliding around shooting yep. people too. I almost wonder, and I don't know this, I didn't get a chance to listen to the commentaries on on the Eureka disc. Um, but uh I almost wonder if this is almost like Choi Hawk kind of saying, hey, this is what my knockoff could have been if Van Damme and the studio hadn't screwed with it, um, because there is a sense of that. And there's there's a bit of a sense of in a lot of Choi Hawk stuff, a sort of palpable anger. Uh, and, and this one has it like he's I don't know, he he he's a very angry filmmaker in a lot of ways. If you go back and look at some of his earliest stuff, there's a real sense of anger in there. And uh, this one, I kind of feel like has that a little bit, too. Uh, of where he's just like, I'm back in Hong Kong and I'm just making the movie that I want to make and fuck all y'all if you don't like it because I'm going to make the movie that I want to make. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I definitely think you can sense that in this film. The story, the attitude of a lot of the characters and to be honest, some some of the elements of the film itself don't feel like a film from 20 years ago. Not to to throw shade at certain places on the planet, but I was really surprised that they seem to have a genuine LGBT relationship as a big part of the story. Um, obviously, the two women and in other places, they were more than happy to say that the Lord doesn't always get things done. So we're just going to do this ourselves and not tell anyone. And it's like. You wouldn't get that in a film made today from China or Hong Kong, well, because for obvious reasons. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, it it is interesting. I, I thought that 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 relationship was interesting because, of course, the implication is is that you no, know, she ends up going, you know, ending up with Nixie at the end of it. But he, but you know, at the time, I mean, that was that was not you know and like you said, you wouldn't see that today at all in any movie coming out of China. So, uh, you know, it is interesting 
this is one of the sort of the last gasp of the the Hong Kong Golden Age. I mean, this is just a couple of years after the takeover. And this is when you were still getting some movies that still felt like vital Hong Kong movies. Not many, but you were still getting some. Uh, and this definitely does fill. I mean, this has its heart and, and, and emotions and feet completely in Hong Kong filmmaking, not mainland China filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, like I said, I, I agree with you. Like, they definitely try and give you the implication that at the end of the film, she's decided to give it a go with Nick. But at the same time, the other, her partner isn't really around a lot. Um, they don't really dive into that. It feels like they were going to, like she's in the first half of the film and then she's just not. But what with what you said about the rewrites, I wonder if that was just one of the things that got written out um, because they wanted, like you say, to focus on Wu Bai kicking some ass, which they definitely do a lot, uh, which I enjoyed. But it, it did feel like it was at the expense of some of the other plot points that the film really felt like it was going to go somewhere and then it doesn't right up until the very end. And it's the same with the whole, like it opens telling you about the seven days of creation. It, that doesn't really come into it throughout the entire film until right at the end where suddenly it's like, oh, okay, now I see why we were having such big religious overtones because it's like, yeah, man and woman need to be together in order to keep the species going. I see. It really doesn't connect with the rest of the film, in my opinion, you know? No, suppose, so supposedly... Choi Hawk's initial like cut of this was like three hours long. Uh, Heresy. And, you can't have a and, film that long. Just ask the Batman fans. Or the uh, yes. No. Yes. Uh, <laughs> moving on. No comment. Uh, but uh, it, it and I guess what he mostly cut out was all that stuff. He left most of Wu Bai's scenes in. But I guess both Tyler uh, Nixie's character and, and the other characters had bigger roles. And uh it sounded like he wanted to do something a little more, yeah, a little more grand and then just decided to pare it down to basically a straightforward action film. Uh, I mean, as straightforward as a Choi Hawk action film can be, but it's still at its core. It's, it's just a straightforward action film. It's not really all that interested in grander themes or topics or anything like that. So yeah, I think some of that is definitely left over from like all those rewrites and all those edits and, and cutting it way, way down. Because you're right, there's a bunch of stuff that just that whole relationship between between uh, Nixie and uh, and Kathy Swee uh, are just um, there. It feels like there's a lot it wants to say there about being a, a parent and an absentee father and stuff like that. But it, it, it just doesn't really ever get into any meat with any of it. And it kind of wraps itself up a little too tidily. Uh, yeah. for my liking. um because she goes from wanting nothing to do with him to like all of a sudden kind of being okay with him to getting like giggly when she sees him and it's a little it, there's not a great flow there as far as that goes especially because Tyler remains for the entire movie an absolute worthless piece of shit as a human being so i'm like why are you having this turnaround on him <laughs> because he sucks he sucks all the way through this movie i guess until the very end but uh yeah i mean i wouldn't say he a hundred percent sucks all the way through because regardless of your i mean 
oh, I'm going to have to like, like back up a minute. So going back to what you said about the fact that she like changes her mind, to be fair, she kind of does that right at the very start of the film, because obviously the whole plot point is, is that they slept together when they were drunk and she got pregnant. But allegedly she's lesbian and isn't attracted to men. So something ain't adding up there. In my opinion, it was just obvious that she's bisexual. Like it's it's not a big deal. But like you said, the film was clearly trying to make that whole, is she going to stay with her actual partner or the guy that knocked her up? But then it doesn't really go anywhere with that. But the guy does try to like connect with her. And they make a point of showing you that whatever he tried that and her girlfriend beat him up for the for trying to do something along the lines of actually communicate with them. And uh, so in the end, he just decides that he's just going to give her money, which, all right, might not be the best solution. But there's an awful lot of people out there that get fuck all from their partners that uh, left them with a the baby. And I think that at least he's given her money. You know, it might not be the best solution it might not make him redeemed for all the other stuff that happens but at least he didn't just be like oh well it's your problem good night you know yeah except he's giving her money in like the most selfish way possible because he's not listening to what she's telling him he's not he's 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 prioritizing his needs over hers and he's working for a shady ass fucking Anthony Wong to make that money it's not like this dude went and got a job at the mall to try and make money right he's working for like this shady ass bodyguard company to do it he might as well be running drugs you know so like <laughs> get a fucking cookie in my book for that like that, 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 that's fair that's fair yeah, okay. We'll, we'll we'll give you that one. We'll we'll put a little score in the book. And then yeah, and then you know, we can get to the end why I continue to think he sucks in this. Um, you know, I mean, he does he does make the right choice at the end of the movie. And he does he does obviously have a hero a, a face turn by the end of the movie, but um again, one of the problems I was having in 2000 when I saw this is is again, this is not the Nick C that I saw in Gen X Cops, you know, and I thought he was going to be like the heir apparent to Chow Yun Fat after Gen X Cops. I'm like, this guy is so cool. And he, he's got this cool hook slide he does in that while he's shooting people. And I'm like, and he's got the, you know, the unimpeachably cool Nixie hair. And, and I saw this one and that, what I'm realized, you know, now 20 years into his career, what I realized is he's much more like uh, Chris Pine or Brad Pitt, where he's this kind of quirky character actor who's trapped in this gorgeous leading man's body. And and it, lot, and it makes a lot more sense now why he, because he turned down Gen Y cops to do this, you know, and Gen Y cops is a terrible movie, Paul Rudd, notwithstanding, but it would have still hooked him up on that, like that hero, you know, that, because they bring in Eason Chan to replace him in Gen Y cops, you know, it would have put him on that bland pop star path to that the Eakin chain path to stardom, essentially. And I get now why he wanted to do this, because he is quirky. He is weird. He does like doing different things with his with his characters. And so this had to be a much more interesting character for him to play because he'd already done the super cool hero thing. So why yeah. would he not do the kind of, uh, you know, this, this his character in this is exactly the type of character Anthony Wong would have played 15 years earlier uh you know in 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 a movie if this had been made 15 years earlier he would have been played by anthony wong 
And, and I get that now. I, and I appreciate that now. Um, and, and so I think he's, as much as I don't like, as much as I think the character is unsympathetic, the, the performance is fucking aces in this. I think he's great in this movie. That's good, man, because as everybody knows, aces go places. Uh, but um, <laughs> hey, I'm probably never going to get to talk about the weird ass comedy uh, films that uh, the, the aces and the five fortunes did on this show. So I got to get my references in somewhere. I'm sure you can get somebody to come and talk to you about those the, those movies. Lots of people like those movies. I, I will tell you, I am not the guy that you want talking about those movies. <laughs> I, I do not enjoy I do not enjoy uh, most of those uh, movies. But um, to, to be fair, it wasn't so much about um, uh, getting someone come on, because if there was a film that I genuinely want to talk about, I'd just do it by myself. It's more the fact of uh, are they really action films? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I guess it depends. You know, certainly I think you could talk about uh, at least a couple of the Aces Go Places as action films. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to talk about I mean, I think you could do the Lucky Stars trilogy. Absolutely. Is, uh, as I plan to do the Lucky Stars trilogy again. Um, it's my show. I'll do I'll, I'll class them as action films. I mean, the first one, uh, Winners and Sinners, definitely. Uh, the other two, it's uh, martial art films, but that it counts, man. It counts. It's like yeah, this I, film. It's like time and tired. I, I wasn't sure if I at originally whether or not I was going to do this one, because although the front cover really makes you think it's a Nicholas E with with a gun, it's like you said, Gen X cops, like new police story. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that, you know, I think that shoot the shootout in the apartment complex in the middle of the that big, the, the you know, the reason people remember time and tide is that set piece in the middle of the movie. And that in and of itself, I think, makes it an action movie. And that is, man, that is a motherfucker of a of a set piece. I mean, that thing is just everything that Choi Hawk does. We are all over the map on this on this episode. I, you know, it was funny when when Matt was on and, and he was so structured because Matt's always so good at that. Being so structured when he comes on a podcast. And I'm like, I'm not. I am all over. I am all over to, the place. To, to be fair. I can work with both because I have incredibly detailed notes that I took as I was watching the film that go in order. So I don't care if people jump all over the place or want to go in order. I can match either. However, I do find it funny because I think for this film, going all over the place works because the creator of this film didn't care about following a narrative flow. So why should we go where you like, Mike? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, honestly, you know, it's like if you haven't seen Time and Tide, well, there's nothing to spoil here because it's the it's a most bog standard like the the actual like synopsis of the movie is really pretty basic right like former assassin is found by his old team he's now got a pregnant wife he's got to protect her take out his old team to do that he ends up teaming up with this guy who is trying to take care of a pregnant woman that he knocked up who's kind of a small time loser that's it that's the that's the movie boom there you go there's the movie basic straightforward there's nothing it's it's how Choi Hawk makes the movie that makes it what we're talking about here. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. I'm sorry. I just picked up the, the case because I, I, I was curious because you you described him as uh, an assassin. And uh, I was like, they don't say that on the back. Do they even say who he is? And they describe him as a disillusioned mercenary mercenary. And I should have said mercenary. They're really mercenaries, not assassins. I, I should have said well, mercenary. I, I want you to go back to your, your point about the big 
um, fight sequence that, you know, the explosive action sequence. But I must admit, I really struggled with the what are they and who they are. Because um, again, like you say, the first half of the film really builds everybody up, but it also kind of goes all over the place. And like the angels and Wu Bai, I didn't make the connection what was going on there because it was so hard to follow because like you say nicholas c is the main character but he's not <laughs> and i was just kind of like hang on is this nicholas c's character no it's not why are we here what are we doing i'm so lost and then it was like oh this guy's the other main character because at the beginning i'm i was like surely it's the cop given that it's an action film that must be the other main character and it's like no she's bugger all to do with it <laughs> She's just gone pretty much after the first sort of 20 minutes. So well, I was like, sorry, that's one thing I just wanted to throw out really quick is, yeah, why is she, why is, why is Ajo, why is Kathy Sui's character, why is she even a cop? What does that even have, like, why make her a cop? Because that has absolutely no relevance to the plot whatsoever. And then, she, and then she quits anyway. So it's, it's, it's less relevant. It, what she does doesn't matter because for whatever reason she decides I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Though, go get, get go back to what you were saying. No, no. That, that that was that was my point. Was is like Wu Bai and the angels having a connection didn't click with me until obviously they meet and then get picked up. But that's like quite a ways into the film. And then this is this is a me problem. But then they start speaking a different language, and I was totally lost. Like, am I supposed to know that these guys know each other? Who are they? Because I, I was just lost by this point. I obviously did piece it together as it went on, but there were so many points where I've just written in the notes, I don't know, man. <laughs> and it's like, I once it, once it all came back together again, it was kind of like, okay, I understand now those other bits, but I feel like if you tried to show this film to the average moviegoer, they wouldn't get far enough. I think a lot of people would check out by then because, like you said, if you don't if you don't pick up on the vibe, if you're not feeling it, I just don't think you're going to make it to the massive, huge spectacle at the midpoint stroke the end. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it definitely it, it, this is one of those movies. This is not a movie that I would necessarily use to introduce somebody to Hong Kong cinema. Um, I, I think this is I mean. Certainly, there are Choi Hawk movies that you could use to introduce people to Hong Kong cinema. I mean, Once Upon a Time in China is, is a great gateway. Um, 100%. But this is one that I feel like you've got to be a little more attuned to the fact that, A, when it comes to HK movies, you got to watch the whole movie uh, because they, they there's so many HK movies where I have thought two-thirds of the movie was borderline unwatchable. And then the last third, you know, the third act pulls it out and, and, and turns it from something that I didn't like into something that I love. Uh, but yeah, this is, it's, it certainly helps. I think this is a movie that is improved with multiple watches because the first time you're watching it, you really don't know where it's going. You know, like you mentioned the bait and switch of the main character to where you're, you're thinking Tyler is the main character. This is who we're following through this movie. And he's really not. He's kind of just along for the ride for the most part. Um, and, and, and that instead it's, you know, the main character is in fact, this guy that we don't even meet for like 20 minutes into the movie, you know, until like 20 minutes into the movie. Um, and, uh, 
we get that big action scene that introduces the angels, but it's not really tied to anything. So it just feels weird that you're getting this action scene, you know, out of nowhere where these guys are killing all these soldiers or cops. I can't remember if they're soldiers or cops, but they're killing all these. Their helmets very helpfully just said security. But I yeah. think they were supposed to be cops of some description. But yeah, they, they again, they, they don't explain. Yeah. And, and, you know, and OK, so we know they're badass, but we don't really know. But yeah, it's not really until you get that scene at the airport uh, where they they've brought Jack to them, you know, that you start to get the sense that they actually know each other. But even that, it's a little weird because they keep saying, you know, you're the best of, you know, you were the best of us and, and stuff like that. And it's like you really don't get any backstory for jack you don't you know and and that's again that goes to that point that a not everything has to be spoon-fed to you you know i'm not one of those people that needs everything explained uh but b like that just goes to that point that that choi hawk's not interested in narrative here he's he's uninterested by mundane things like character development and backstory and stuff like that that it's not (laughs) that's not what he's here for in in this one he wants you to feel this movie not just watch the movie um and uh and so you know that but that, that that's that can be tough for people if you're not used to it uh, it, it can be a little bit of a, a, a tricky go. Um, like I said, I mean, again, I didn't love this movie in 2000 and it wasn't just as a mix. I mean, it, all the things you're talking about are things that I agree with. And I think probably kept me a little bit at a distance in 2000. For me now, this feels like such a dead style of cinema um, that I like it a lot more because there's so many movies. Bear with me. I'm going to ramble here for a little bit, but I, I see a lot of people on Twitter who are a lot younger than me discovering things like PM entertainment, right? And, and Gary Daniels movies and stuff like that, or discovering classic Hong Kong cinema and, and like flipping shit for them. And, and they're flipping shit for a lot of movies that I remember seeing and being like, that's not actually very, you know, at the time it wasn't very good. Uh, but I get it now because we don't get those movies anymore. So they feel so much more special. You know, the Tiger Claws trilogy, the Yoel Mary Tiger Claws trilogy was nothing to me when they came out. I didn't give a shit because there was another PM Entertainment movie coming out two weeks later. Right. I didn't care. But we don't get those movies anymore. Billy Blanks isn't making five movies a year anymore. Cynthia Rothrock is barely even working now. And so you like them better now because they do feel special. And that's how I feel about time and tide at the time it came out. I was like, well, this is definitely actually a step down. I mean, this isn't the blade. This isn't picking opera blues for Choi Hawk. This is kind of not even very good Choi Hawk. I don't think that anymore because we don't get this kind of movie from him or anybody anymore. And so now I feel like it's a lot more special movie than it felt to me in 2000. To be honest, uh, this this actually ties back into something that I think we said when we were recording our Spider-Man episode, but I might be wrong. We might have said it before we hit record, but you've just basically described what people are doing when they're discovering non-MCU Marvel movies. And they're like, what is this? And it's like, it's called filmmaking. Sam Raimi's really good at it. And 
there isn't just one way to make films. And you're absolutely right. Not everything in this film works for me, but you, I can immediately tell that this film was made back in a time when everybody, like you said, was experimenting. And this was just after The Matrix. And it isn't trying to be The Matrix. Like every other film in the action genre suddenly decided we must be like The Matrix. But there were always these other people that were going, or, and hear us out here, we could try and be the thing that is going to be the next Matrix, or we could just do our own thing. And you don't get that now. Because like you say, nobody's making these types of films. And this leads into a bigger rant about whether or not you can even afford to make these types of films. But, and the answer is you can't. But, you know, going back and rewatching it, like you said, younger people that never experience that and even people my age who just missed all of it because they were already kind of being funneled into you only watch the stuff that comes out in cinema and they didn't know all this other stuff was out there they watch this other stuff and they go wow this is really cool why don't we make stuff like this and how did i not hear about it at the time depending on the age and like you say the tiger claws trilogy is a great example because i've got the vinegar syndrome uh, box set and the thought that, that that, of all things, has a Vinegar Syndrome box set with this amazingly cool art and all these special features. But when it came out, it was just a regular VHS tape on the shelf. It was not anything special, but now it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and even my opinion on those movies has changed when I go back and watch them because they do feel like warm blankets now. You know, I, I go back and watch one and it's... Well, you know, you know that one of my favorite directors is Albert Pune. And and I'll be the first to admit that that when his movies were coming out, I was an Albert Pune fan. I mean, I, I've had a Nemesis poster that I've carried around for almost 30 years now. Uh, but I certainly shit on a lot of his movies when they were coming out in a way that I wouldn't now, because I recognize now what is much like Choi Hawk. What a singular madman Albert Pune was, right? What what a singular idiosyncratic filmmaker he was, uh, and and so time and tide does like soften those edges and does give us perspective on on things that we maybe don't have, you know. And this is why it is sometimes important to go back and revisit movies uh, because the movie doesn't change, but you do. And, and, and so it's important to know that I am not the same person I was in 2000 when I was watching 50 Hong Kong movies a year. Now I don't watch any Hong Kong movies. And if I do, they're, they're revisits, right? They're all they're or, or they're new to, they maybe they're new to me, but they're all made pre 2000. And so I am a different person and I had a much better time with time and tide this time because of that. Uh, even though I do still think it's a mess. You know, I, I tweeted last night. It, it's not even going to it doesn't smell my top five of Choi Hawk movies, but I still think it's I still think it's a banger pretty much, you know, through and through. Yeah, I saw that those tweets and your your top five is pretty much my top five. Um, the only one I don't own irritatingly is the blade uh, because it, it only it doesn't have a high definition released to my knowledge and I never had it on DVD. So. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I don't know what it is about the older generation of filmmaking. In fact, I'm going to go slightly off topic now. And, and my dad, 
had a long period of time where he was off of work because of the stuff he had going on. And he actually went and on Netflix and found My Beloved Bodyguard or The Bodyguard, depending on where you are. But it's the Sammo Hung film. And when he put it on, he didn't realize it was a subtitled film. But be, but he stuck with it because he had the time and because it was Sammo Hung and he remembered liking Sammo. And I remember he made a point of saying, like, that was one of the best films he'd watched in years. And he wasn't talking about foreign films. He just meant in general, because even though to a lot of people, that film might not have been what the action community wanted, I think is a fair comment, even though I still personally liked it. But for a lot of people, that was a, you had a big enough actor that could get people to watch a film that isn't made like a lot of films are made today because it's somebody who used to make films back in the day coming back. And like you said, there are still Choi Hawk films being made, but they're not like they used to be. And I know the Detective D films, they, they, they do pretty well for themselves. It isn't like he's uh, failing to still make good films. It's just that everything now seems to follow a blueprint and this stuff feels like it was trying to draw outside the lines. And some of it works, and some of it's really well remembered. And you can't look at this stuff objectively and say, oh, this works. Um, you won't know this, so I'm going to give you a bit of more backstory. But the listeners, if they listen to the previous episode, will have heard me and Andy talk about objectivity when we were talking about Navy SEALs. I said that I had previously just watched a video about whether or not you can look at art and they were talking about films specifically, objectively. Is it possible to review a film objectively? No, it isn't. But they were arguing that it is. That's irrelevant. Point is, you have just basically countered his points by pointing out that everybody changes over time. You have a completely different experience watching this film now than you did 20 years ago. And whenever we revisit a film, the same thing is true. And if you reviewed films objectively, it wouldn't change. I, I get really frustrated with people that say this film is objectively bad, this film is objectively good, or this film is better than that film, which is slightly different. But whenever people make those arguments, they almost always put the word objectively in it. The way you feel about a film today will change how you feel about it next year, because other stuff will happen to you, which will change your experiences and your life viewpoint. And then when you rewatch it, you'll go, ah, that's not as good as I remember. Or actually, that's way better than I remember or shit will hit you harder because you've gone through stuff that you hadn't gone through yet. I made the mistake of watching Homeward Bound the other day with my partner. And if we needed a good cry, that was a really good choice. Really wasn't needing one, but you know, <laughs> but you can understand my point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, so for me on that, so in the legal field, we use objective and subjective a lot. There's a lot of legal tests that have an objective component and a subjective component. So I do think there are things you can review about movies objectively. For instance, I think it's fair to say objectively, uh, time and tide narratively convoluted. Okay, because it is it is that that is an objective statement, right? Objectively, this is not a narratively conventional movie. Now, yes. where I think people get hung up is your reaction to it 
not being an objectively narratively conventional movie is subjective. That might turn some that might turn you off. You might like it. Uh, and so I think that's the that's the thing is there are look, there are objective components of filmmaking, right? There are rules of filmmaking. And again, as I said way back when, you got to learn them in order to break them. Uh, and you can watch a movie where it's very clear they just never even learned the rules to begin with. Right. Um, so those are objective things. But at the end of the day, yes, I do think your reaction to those objective things is the subjectivity and that, that you know, what works well okay here's another perfectly good example the dreaded the batman um (laughs) i think objectively now i would argue uh objectively there are some things in there that i don't think are very good but objectively most of that movie is very very good a very very competently constructed right uh, in terms of filmmaking techniques my reaction to said objectively competent filmmaking techniques was that I wanted to hurl myself into a brick wall. And so that's the subjective component. I'm I'm not going to tell somebody that the Batman is a bad movie. What I am what I can say because that's just to me that's just wrong on its face, right? Like that is that's that's a hot take for hot take's sake. What I can say is that my subjective reaction to the decisions that Matt Reeves made in that movie were visceral and unpleasant and that's where the subjective component comes in and i think what happens is a lot of people that try to say you can't objectively review things they blend those two in such a way that they're not that they it gives they feel like it gives them more credibility or more of a leg to stand on instead of just saying here's x y and z decisions that were made in the movie here's why i don't like x y and z decisions Therefore, I don't like the movie. If you like X, Y, and Z decisions, then you will probably like this movie. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it does. Um, it, it's funny because I agree. I agree with what you're basically saying. I am one of those people that that doesn't agree with you can review stuff objectively. But what you just said, I'm going to rephrase it. It's not that you can't review stuff objectively. But majority of people, that isn't why they're reading or watching a review. They don't actually care if the film is well constructed because they think the vast majority of filmgoers assume if it wasn't, I wouldn't be watching it in a cinema. They want to know about all this other stuff and all the other stuff, it, like you just said, is the subjective parts. I, I hear so many people, once they get a film degree, man, it's like, I want to talk about color grading. And it's like, I'm sure you do, but I'm. Promise you, nobody cares. That hasn't also gone to film school, and it's those sorts of things that I feel get lost in translation sometimes. Um, I can also give you an example because we were talking about it earlier, which is that Shin Godzilla. It's a it's a well crafted movie. I am more than happy to say objectively, it is a good made film. Subjectively, however. I was thinking of the various different ways that I could potentially, as you said, hurl myself out of the window and at what velocity I would be required in order to ensure maximum impact. But that's a me thing. That's not the film's fault. I get that. And I don't understand why so many other people don't. How we got here, I don't know. But we're in the weeds now. Keep it going. Well, I mean, because we're talking about a movie here that that is 
you know, I mean, this is what Choi Hawk does, right? He is the master. He's mastered every possible filmmaking rule there is. And he's done it better than damn near anybody that's ever lived. So now he's just fucking with all of it. And so your reaction to this movie, this is a movie that actually does almost defy any type of objective reading. Because he's not interested in objective filmmaking techniques. I mean, other than objectively, I think the camera work in this is incredible, you know, but but so much of this movie is how you react to it. There, there isn't really a way, I think, to review Time and Tide that isn't anything other than how the movie made you feel, uh, because that's all Choi Hawk is interested in. Uh, you know, yeah, okay, fine. We'll talk about color grading. We'll talk about all of that. But I mean, come on, this thing is edited insanely. This thing is edited by rabid wolverines. Like it, it, it just, it, it, it's, it's absolutely insane. The, the freezes and like you mentioned, the drop frames and the, the jump cuts and the, and the, the way that, uh, especially in that big fight that we started talking about and then got way off track, the big <laughs> fight in the apartment complex, you know. When Nick is fighting the dude with the, you know, he's got the sledgehammer and stuff. There are so many like weird jump cuts and dropped frames and stuff in that fight. And, and then he just decides to do a freeze frame effect for when the sledgehammer hits his face. And I was like, okay, we're just, we're just making this up as we go along, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, sure. I want to like, a, but, but the problem is even if you're like, okay, well, this is, this is poorly edited, but it's not because Every decision, there's a reason why Choi Hawk is making every decision that he is. Now, that decision, that reason may just be because he fucking felt like it. Uh, but there is a reason that he's making every decision that he's doing there. This isn't somebody that doesn't know how to make a movie. This is somebody that knows how to make a great movie and is like, yeah, but I'm not. I'm just going to fuck around with it. And so the only way to really address that or deal with that is to look and go okay so did that work for me did i enjoy that uh did that was that a pleasurable viewing experience for me to see all these weird jump cuts and all this sort of stuff and you know and for me this time around it was i enjoyed the hell out of it but in 2000 i think it was probably a little more off-putting for me um and i certainly could see you know a lot of times when i have to watch a movie for a podcast i'll watch them with my wife this one, I didn't even try because I remembered it and I'm like, it's going to it's going to she's going to bounce off, it, you know. Um, and so it's one of those where it's like, that's the only way to engage with this movie. It's the only way to engage with a lot of Choi Hawk movies. I mean, how do you engage with the Blade, a, a movie that is a, a, a nightmarish fever dream? You know, well, you engage with it as a nightmarish fever dream, you know, not necessarily as. Uh, the way that I might, you know, I started watching last night um, this new movie, The Survivor, the new Barry Levinson movie. Um, I'm halfway through it before I, I got halfway through it before I had to go to bed. But, um, you know, it's very good, very traditional, very well structured, everything like that. Um, and so, again, you can kind of objectively talk about that movie a little bit, but it also doesn't hit me the way The Blade or Time and Tide does. I mean, Choi Hawk wants to just kick you right in the nuts and just be like, notice me, witness me, you know, and uh, and that's that's the only yeah. way to view his movies in a lot of ways, I think. I, I had two very, very different images flash in my head then. The first one, you said notice me and I was just imagining an anime 
uh, Choi Hawk stand in. Notice me, senpai. And then it very quickly, as you said it, you went witness me, and then it just transformed. Witness me, and it's like mm, they're very different things. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But yeah, no, I I agree. I haven't seen or, or even heard of uh, that film that you just mentioned. I'm I'm not really keeping up to date, to be blunt. Um, at the moment, I'm very much like not online a lot these days. No, no other reason than just time, to be honest. But I I feel that way with a, a few films I've watched recently that haven't been for this show, just just films in general, and they don't make you feel anything. But they're not bad. And I've always said that that's the worst thing a film can do. And if I hate a film, I can talk about it. And I can tell you why. Like, Shin Godzilla, I I put out a tweet that was just trying to be funny. And it is funny. But that ain't why I dislike the film. (laughs) There's there's other actual reasons that I could sit and have a conversation about. And if you like it, like most people do, that's fine. It's just not what I want from a Godzilla film. I want to see two monsters fight each other and beat each other up. I know the humans don't stand a chance. It's a giant monster that can shoot atomic breath. I knew that going in, (laughs) but that's irrelevant. Time and Tide, it does make you feel things. They're not always good things. Like you said, the the Nicholas Z's character is particularly likable. The editing is weird. The narrative is weird. But when the action hits and when he doesn't do weird jump cuts, it just goes, man. And it's so enjoyable. And yeah, maybe Wubai wasn't supposed to be the main character. But like you said, that main action set piece in the apartment building is just great. And all the weird camera angles, all the choices, they all work. They all come together. Yes, there's a couple I don't like. But as a whole, viewing it you know, in a finished creation, if they weren't in it, I wouldn't be sat here ranting about it. I would have just said, yeah, it's a cool action scene. So they've achieved their desired purpose, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and what I love about that scene, too, is just the way the camera is is constantly in motion, but also constantly following our characters. You know, I mean, there's, you know, we, we just talked on Action for Everyone a couple of weeks ago about Ambulance and about how Michael A did some really creative use of, of drone uh, film, you know, filmography or cinematography. And I'm sitting here wondering how Choi Hawk got some of these shots without friggin' drones, because, you know, there's scenes where like Wubai is rappelling down the building and the camera's following him down. And I mean, I know there's ways they could do it, but it is such a dynamic camera during that scene, but it's not achy. Oh, are we going to say Scott? Sorry, go ahead. So, so sorry, I was just gonna say um, I don't, I don't, I know you're being diplomatic, and I, and, but we, we both know how they did that. They got a rope, they tied it around a man, <laughs> they gave him a camera, and they said, if he dies, he dies. Go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true, you know. But, uh, but it, it, the, the camera is so dynamic and so energetic in this movie, but it's never shaky. You, you know, it's funny. For all the jump cuts and everything, you still never really lose the geography of that big scene. Like you can still tell they're on this floor and now they're going down to this floor and 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 they're in this room and stuff like that. You never really lose sight of where everything is. Um it it is a it is such a viscerally entertaining 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Just it, it, it's just it's hard not to let 
that if you get to that point, if you're not, you know, turned off by some of the narrative stuff before that, um, boy, it's hard not to just let this movie just like wash over you and win you over because that is just such an enthusiastic, bravura action set piece. Um, you know, I mean, if, if that was in an American movie that came out today, people would be like, and you and I even talked about it when we when we talked about Spider-Man No Way Home, how much we liked uh, the fight in in the apartment, in Happy's apartment and, and, you know, and how well done we thought that actually was. But could you imagine if this had been that fight instead, how much people would be blowing their goddamn minds? You know, if you had that kind of camera work and that kind of inventiveness to it. So, you know, I, I mean, I think that is the thing. Anybody watching this, you, you got to give it to that action scene in the, in the middle, because that's really, to me, where the movie comes together. And 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 from then on out, I think it's just a, a just a, a grand old fucking time. I, I just I just think it's a blast from the, the, the final, you know, sort of third act or so of this is just a great time. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, like I said, all the action scenes are really well done. Um, I'm going to rewind a bit and come back to it, because one thing I wanted to say is when you were talking about the scene where the angels are first introduced and they take apart that security team. The one thing that was playing through my head, and obviously it's a different director, but other than the actual shootout shots, there there's a lot of the security guys that get taken out semi-off screen, but they come back on screen just enough for you to see how they're being killed, like they're being strangled or they got caught in a trap or whatever it might be. And I couldn't help but think of New Police Story when the SWAT team gets taken apart way too easily and convoluted and i i was sort of thinking they're very very similar but like you said the difference is Troy hawk actually shows you how they're able to do it rather than just it's done <laughs> and it's so much uh better executed that i really liked that and then when we come to some of the other fights because there's some hand-to-hand fights in between before we get to the big fight. One of the things that was throwing me off is that they felt weird. And obviously we've already said that some of the camera angles were weird, but that wasn't what was doing it. I realized afterwards that unlike almost every other action film, I think out there, even though he's OTT with the action, it's highly stylized and it's not trying to be realistic. He didn't give them any sound effects or any music for pretty much all of the fights until at the very end. Then all of a sudden the whoosh effects comes in, which is just weird because then I really noticed them. But for most of the fights, all of the hit effects are really subdued. There's no sound effects at all if shots don't connect and there's no ambient sounds. It's just two guys flailing at each other or flailing at multiple people. And I realized that actually kind of makes you uncomfortable in combination with the camera movements being weird and the edits being weird. And like you said, you can follow it, but it also kind of gives you this really weird sort of dizzying effect of, I know what's going on, but at the same time, I feel like I don't. And it's like, yeah, kind of like how the character's feeling right now, because he has no clue what's going on. And being in a fight isn't a nice, clean cut spectacle, like a lot of Kung Fu films make it out to be. And so I hated it at first because I was like, I, uh, what's going on? But then once it clicked for me that that's what was happening, I was like, actually, 
I kind of like this and I really like it. Again, it goes, I, I, I keep harping on this. Again, it goes back to the, you got to know the rules to break the rules. And that's exactly what he's doing, right? He knows that we're expecting whoosh and, and big, loud smacks and stuff like that as these guys are fighting. And so he's deliberately not doing that uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, again, if you've ever been in a fight or seen a fight in real life, you know, that we don't when you get punched it doesn't sound like it sounds in a kung fu movie it sounds more like <laughs> a wet towel slapping against something like it doesn't you know and so he's he is and and i'm with you i i hadn't really thought of that but i, I really like that point that so much of this is all about making you while still being able to follow the action making you very disoriented uh and and kind of off base just like Tyler is in particular. And, and that's why in a lot of ways, I think it's very clever that we don't see a ton of action from Jack. You know, Jack comes in and does something and then he disappears again because Jack is the one that's in control. Jack is not disorder. He is the traditional Hong Kong action hero. He's the Chow Yun fat going through doing all this stuff, but he's, he's off. Uh, you know, he's kind of like, he's kind of like, um, uh, in Big Trouble in Little China, right? You know, like yeah. like Tyler's our Jack Burton, and the actual hero is off doing doing other stuff, and that's sort of how Jack works in this. He, you know, he's got more screen time, but it, it's all still kind of through Tyler's perspective, and so we're all we're off kilter for most of the whole movie because of that. Um, really, again, if you sit down and actually like take the movie in, there's a lot of really terrific stuff in it. Uh, it's just it's it's uh it wants to challenge you a little bit more than just sitting back and watching you know people kick each other in the face yeah it's funny because i was thinking of big trouble in little china when we were talking earlier and then we moved on and i, and I didn't say it but also it wasn't until you just said it that it clicked in my head even though it was swimming around in there but i said at the end all the whoosh effects they do eventually come back and it's just this second occurred to me but that's because at the end Wubai's character is allowed to do a lot more and we start seeing it from his point of view. All of his stuff doesn't have the weird editing. His stuff is shot traditionally and very clean because as you just said, he knows what he's doing. It's not weird for him. It's not disorientating for him. And I didn't even make that connection till we were just talking that it's only when it's from uh, Nicholas Z's character's point of view that you get a lot of the weird jump cuts and the weird uh, differences and the angel's point of view, when they're trying to kill Wubai's character, he gets some of those weird jump cuts too. But the driving segments make sense. And all of the stuff at the end makes sense when he's taking on the SWAT team, in inverted commas, because the difference between their characters is one understands this world and one really doesn't. Yeah, yeah. One's completely outclassed and, and, and you know, has no business even being there. Yeah, no, it's it's again, it's this is where you know kind of going back to i feel like i'm repeating myself a lot but that whole objective versus subjective thing right there there's not a decision made in this movie that i don't think Choi hawk knew exactly what he's doing uh everything was done with purpose everything was done with uh i don't want to say with a plan because he doesn't plan he makes shit up but he's so brilliant he's so he's such a creative genius that he can just immediately kind of put that stuff together uh and it makes it, you know, it makes it a, a fun, a fun time. It, again, if you get on the vibe of it, uh, 
this is, you know, again, like I said, would never be the first movie, Hong Kong movie that I would use to introduce somebody to Hong Kong. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't worry too much about repeating yourself because if there's one thing I've learned from uh, modern day journalism and uh, YouTube people, it's that consistently and constantly repeating yourself is how you get up there, man. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. And like you say, we've gone all over the place on this one, but I really wasn't looking forward to trying to talk about the story because thankfully you've already covered it for me that it's pretty bog standard. So realistically, I don't really want to, like not in any great detail, because all of the stuff that I would talk about goes nowhere. And all of the stuff that I want to talk about, we kind of already have, because it all leads to the action sequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the you know, the narrative is just here to get us to get us to that point. Uh, you know, there's a lot of convoluted stuff that's not worth, you know, like the fact that Wu Bai's wife's dad is rich and he's actually the target of the angels. And the, 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 you can just even feel that, that, that Choi Hawk doesn't care about any of that. That's just there to, to get the character. That's just there to get the chess pieces in place. Right. Um, we do need to talk, you know, when you're like, well, I don't think Tyler's that bad. We do need to talk about how he basically threatens a pregnant woman at gunpoint so that he can steal her money uh, at the end of the movie. So that's what I'm like. Uh, yeah, like this dude didn't have he, like he's pretty much a piece of shit right up until like the last five minutes of the movie. You know, um, <laughs> I'll be I'll be honest. I, I was pretty sure that was the bit you were thinking of. However, I don't know whether or not, like you say, maybe I was just reading too much into it, but that whole sequence made no sense to me. And I agree with you. I didn't understand why he was doing it, but it, it, it it's so weird because he does that, but then he ends up protecting her and it turns out his, her husband was there the whole time. And now he's like, we have to rely on our friend. And I'm like, okay, so did you know he was also going to show up? Because it feels like you planned for everything else that's happening. And um, as for the holding her up at gunpoint, what the gun that's held together with sellotape and takes BB pellets, you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't know that. Well, <laughs> I, I must admit, I have my own little problem with that as well, because I could see her struggling to walk from locker to locker, and I'm sat there going, she's going to go into labor in a minute, isn't she? And I was like, yep. And uh, even though she wasn't in the room because she's doing other stuff today, um, I could hear Jay's voice in my head going, that's not how labor works. That's that's not how any of this shit works. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And that is one of those weird, that is one of those weird, oddly conventional narrative conceits that the movie makes. You know, uh, uh, the whole lady has to give birth during an action scene or during a time of crisis and our, uh, you know, incapable hero has to deliver the baby that, that one that one was one that was strangely conventional for me although i do appreciate you know the bad guy throws a fucking baby so i'm always happy it's one of the reasons i love jolt i'm always happy anytime babies get thrown in a movie i'm all about throwing babies in movies and then uh, I, love, I, do, I love the way you keep going in movies i must stress in movies <laughs> don't, don't, don't throw your babies in real life but then also the way uh when Candy Lo finally gets her hands on the gun, she just shoots the shit out of him. And then I love the little Choi Hawk touch of he falls over 
and shoots his own gun and it blows him backwards. Like, like just again, that's that crazy Hong Kong shit that I love so much, right? She shoots him 57 times. He falls to his knees, leans over, but then his gun hits the ground and it blows him backwards. I'm like, you didn't need to put that in there. That served no purpose, but it was awesome. Like, I fucking loved it. <laughs> I, I also love the fact that, um, Sorry, I keep saying their actor's name. It's because the characters' names just didn't imprint in my brain at all. But Nicholas C. Tyler, right? Yeah. When he is, he realizes that there's a guy coming up behind them. And he's like, yeah, I can't deliver your baby and could be covering the door. So here, you take the gun. And my brain went, you're giving a woman who's in labor a gun. And to f- do that, you need to squeeze the trigger. Have you ever held the hand of someone giving birth? And as I was thinking this, she contracted and then fired the gun. <laughs> I was like, okay, good. We're not ignoring that. <laughs> Nearly kills yeah. him before he even gets in the room. And I was like, okay, we're acknowledging this is a bad idea then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, it, it is funny because the, 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 that whole final of this movie, the finale is, is, you know, the most conventional part of the movie. And like you said, I think that's by design because again, Nixie's starting to get more comfortable with what's going on in this situation. And then Wu Bai is now becoming our perspective character. So everything kind of settles into a more conventional filmmaking style and narrative and stuff like that. But I still think there's a lot of pretty fun stuff in here. I, I do also like the way our, our final bad guy gets, I can't remember his name, but finally gets killed where he Wu Bai, you know, kicks the or hits the uh, the grenade back at him and stuff. I thought that was that was pretty clever. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually have a note about that because I want I wanted to know why the grenade has a power up sound effect that sounds suspiciously like the night goggles from Splinter Cell. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it, it 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 goes into a much more fun kind of uh, a vibe here at the end, um, even though it's more conventional. Um but uh, yeah, I, I did think the whole having to give birth thing was ultimately, you know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, but we've seen it in a thousand movies before. And, oh, and yeah. I, you know, it just is. It is what it is. So uh, one of the things that starts in the apartment complex, but carries on when they get to the train station. And I, I don't know if it would be done today. If it was done, it wouldn't be done in quite the same way. Because the only other film I can think of that really did this was Jack Reacher, the Tom Cruise one, not the series. And that is that they really don't care how many civilians get killed or caught in the crossfire. The amount of kids that get killed in the apartment and then like they kill the, the security guard by accident in the train station. But then after that, they're like, oh, well, anyone else who gets in the way just gets in the way and they just drop bodies like it doesn't matter and whilst i liked that because they're bad guys or mercenaries they wouldn't care so many films wouldn't do that because a it would cause so much controversy but b most of them just wouldn't have the balls to do it and the only other one i could think of recent ish is jack reacher where they have the sniper scene at the beginning of the film and it's really really like hard to watch because of how they film it but I really like the way that Choi Hawk filmed it because, like you say, there's some of it he doesn't show and it's implied. And then by the end, it's just like, nope, we're just going to show all these people getting killed because they're in the way. 
Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I had totally forgotten about the scene in the apartment where the two kids on the skateboards get killed. Um, that, well, I, that was um, kind of- sorry, but it's, it's not even just that because before the kids on the skateboard, there's the old man with the sniper and he's got that little boy and he's sat on his bunk bed and then he gives him a lollipop and then he pulls out his pistol and the, the scene then changes to the sound of his gun firing and then you have the two on the skateboard. So they kill so many kids in yeah. that sequence. Oh yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely, it definitely doesn't pull any punches as far as that goes. Um, you know, and yeah, like the, the train station, you know, battle they they take out an entire SWAT team basically. Um, you know, it, it's yeah, there's definitely a lot of collateral damage in this, in this movie that you wouldn't typically see in, in an American movie. Uh, certainly one being made today. Uh, that would be, a big no-go yeah i did find it funny because that swat team was just they went from being really inept to to suddenly understanding what was going on which i liked but it did make me chuckle that the guy completely loses contact with charlie team and it's just like oh well (laughs) wait what and then later on when he finds out that they were ambushed then suddenly he like wants updates every three minutes and he and he, he gets all this stuff organized and i was just sort of like where was that 10 minutes ago when you lost contact with them but what i liked is even though like you say a lot of the swat guys get killed because they don't realize that some of their men are being impersonated um when they do find out they actually get a realistic but also a positive response whereas i feel like in so many films the people that come in, the guys in charge, are always portrayed as useless assholes. And uh, the one, the most obvious one that comes to mind is Die Hard, where every single person that comes in who's supposed to be the guy that's going to come in and fix things just makes it 10 times worse. And the SWAT guy starts off as one of those people, but then when he gets new information, he doesn't just rigidly go, no, I'm sticking to what I know works. He goes situations changed we're changing tactics and actually adapts to the situation and as i said right at the beginning this is one of those things that again you wouldn't see in a film today is sometimes the law isn't enough to keep people safe so even though he's already caught wubai's character he's like here's a gun please go do what you're really good at and see if you can save as many people along the way and I just don't think that anyone would be brave enough to do that these days, you know? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't know either. You know, it's definitely and, and certainly even in, in mainland China, they couldn't do that. You know, no. God, the cops are all in mainland China, right? Um, I mean, Raging Fire just tells you that, you know, uh, as much as I love that movie. But that was still that wasn't, you know, Donnie's a cop in that movie. He's not, you know, and it's a similar situation. He's being told, you know, go finish it up. But it being told that under the color of law not like this one where the SWAT guy literally says uh, the law is not enough here you know these people you know what they can do uh, you know go go do it go stop them yeah I, I thought that was I thought well I mean you know and you get the nice little touch of him saying well I, I can only give you the best I can do is give you three minutes um, I thought that was I thought that was that was pretty nice but um yeah, it definitely, again, it feels like a dying gasp of a dying genre and a dying industry. And I don't mean dying gasp in a bad way, but, you know, this this is kind of one of the last 
oof Hong Kong movies to really to really kind of come out that feels like a Hong Kong, you know, the DNA of this movie is in 1986 and 1992, you know, uh, uh, in a way that that we're so far removed from now in, in and, and I, I still like a lot of modern Chinese cinema. I mean, I fucking Raging Fire was one of my favorite movies of the year last year, but 100%. Um, we're so far removed from, again, when movies like this were coming out two, three times a week. <laughs> you know, and, and not to be fair, Raging Fire was an anomaly. It's not like Raging Fire was one of many. That was the that was so huge because it was like the first time a film like that had been made so well in a long time, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it. It really was, like I said, it really did feel, I know some people disagreed, but for me, it really felt like that was the funeral for Hong Kong cinema. Um, yeah. That was the, the, I feel like the last one we were ever really going to get. Um, and even that one, so, so mainland influenced, it doesn't totally get there, but it was still such a tremendous movie. I didn't care. I, I think, and obviously we'll never know because rest in peace, Benny, but I think they knew that when they were making it. Because they could see the writing on the wall, they knew what was coming, and with what was going on in Hong Kong at the time, I think they just knew that it was a case of, we make this now, it's never going to get made because we're not going to have a film industry uh, next year, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and that's that's kind of how, you know, Time and Tide, it feels like to me, like, Time and Tide and Raging Fire make nice little bookends of the end if you will, like time and tide in 2000 really feels like here's the beginning of the end. This is from here on out. We're going to get progressively worse and worse movies. We're going to start getting shit like twins effect and, you know, and just bullshit like that all throughout. And then eventually the mainland's going to take over and all these Hong Kong directors are going to go do mainland movies. And then we get raging fire. And, and this is the death knell. Uh, you know, this 20 year slow procession to death for the Hong Kong film industry, um, which is a bit of a bummer, but I mean, it is what it is, you know, at least we still have the movies, hopefully buy them all you can before they all disappear. I, I'm glad that there are places like Eureka. Uh, we really do need to shout out that Eureka disc is great. Uh, mm. Oh yeah. Really impressed with the quality of, of the, the image and, you know, them trying to put these out because uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a bummer. There's a, anytime I watch a Hong Kong movie now, there's always a little bit of a bittersweet feeling in, in me as I watch it. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. I'm trying to remember if this, as hard as this is to believe, I have a lot of conversations about action films, a problem I believe you can relate to. And I can never remember if I'm, if I've said these things on the show or if I've said them outside of the show, but I, I remember a conversation with someone and I, I remember that we were talking about the best of modern films and how they're always being compared to Hong Kong. And, and you, when you say, oh, you're comparing it to Hong Kong, you're also comparing it to a specific time period. I can guarantee you when someone says Hong Kong, they're talking about the 1980s Hong Kong, maybe a few from the 90s, but it's almost always 1980s. And in some respects, it's really, really cool that they were able to have such an impact on cinema that we're still talking about them as the gold standard. But then I'm also reminded of something that like 
both my granddad and my dad said at one point about music, but being applied to film, which is that, isn't it also kind of sad that it's 2022 and I still think my favorite action films are in the 80s and there are really, really good ones being made today, but do they compare? No. Why? You know, it's like, it's 40 years later, man. Shouldn't it be easy to make better films? Well, I think the problem is, is yes, but also, like you said, it's a specific time and it's a specific confluence of circumstances. You know, these, the French New Wave, uh, the Hong Kong Golden Age, you know, these are uh, New Hollywood in the 70s. These are eras that are influenced by more than just the films. There's socio-cultural things that all come together to create this perfect storm. Um, I mean, I I, honestly, we we do kind of have one, you know, certainly I think the Korean new wave of, of the two thousands was, was one, although the the Korean cinema has gone a bit of a different direction. They they've pulled back from the wild over the top action and they've gone more sort of, in terms of their action movies, the the sort of more gangster drama, you know, type serious films. But these all, they all require more than just talented filmmakers making movies. They require things in the outside world to allow all of these things to happen. And we've had some that have tried to spring up, but they've fallen apart for whatever reason, probably because of infrastructure. You know, I think of, of Thai cinema in the the late 2000s, starting with Ong Bok, but then the Thai film industry is is a dumpster fire. You know, they 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 never were able to expand in the way that Hong Kong was for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, their their leading man Tony Jaa decided that the only way to get out some bad contracts was to go be a monk for a few years, which pretty much killed the momentum of both the, that industry and him. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's because the studio that he worked for was, you know, they were awful. I mean, they, they would routinely blacklist people. It was, it was, it, it's a whole big bad thing, mm. you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Indonesia uh, looked like it was going to take off and it still is. Uh, but it, again, it's a small country. The thing that made Hong Kong so unique was they had a lot of money and a lot of, well, not a lot of money, but money and people. And so, Part of what also made that such a unique period was just the sheer proliferation of movies that they were making. They made so, you know, if you if you sort of consider uh, just even look at the the John Woo era. So 86 to 92, basically, if you look at how many goddamn movies they made, mm-hmm. it's insane. Um, and, and so that also helped. And that's just not something that's ever going to be replicated now. You know, you're just never gonna gonna see a, an industry make that many movies. I, I guess, I mean, I guess technically you you could, and that's the one area where we've got it now is uh, South Asian cinema. You know, they make that many movies a year, and those movies are breaking through, breaking out. Um, you know, you guys talked Master, but obviously RRR has been a very big global success. So that that, that might be the next sort of one that. Yeah, kind of ch- for people. I I also think uh, sticking with the 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 South Asian uh, group is they also have something that I think m- helped make Hong Kong great, which is that 
they had competition. There wasn't just one monolith studio deciding everything. You know, you had Golden Harvest, you had the Shaw Brothers, you had a lot of independent random labels that would come up, but they were constantly competing with each other to get the best directors, to get the best actors, to get the best stuntmen. And I think the same thing is happening with Indian films, as Matt said in our episode a couple of weeks ago, is that you've got all these different groups, these different film styles, these different dialects with their own little culture, that there's always going to be that competition to be better than the guy down the street. And I feel like a lot of the places you just mentioned, and even the big place, they don't really have that. They can do whatever they like or not because no one's going to come along and compete with them and they know it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially that's, you know, one of the common complaints with mainland China movies is because they're all government run now, basically, you know, and here in the U.S. it's the same. I mean, that's the problem we've got, right? Like, like it or not, the MCU and Disney are the big, there's just, there's, there is no real realistic competition for Disney at this point. Um, and, and so you're not getting, and, you know, the budgets are just getting slashed and cut and destroyed on stuff. I mean, you know, but that's a whole different conversation for another yeah, day. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk an indie movie or something, but, um, yeah, it's, it's hard not to watch these movies and feel, you know, I've never been one of those guys that's like, oh, they don't make them like they used to anymore and stuff like that. But because I, I think a lot of times that's a just a very boring way of saying uh, or, or a way of saying that you're boring and you don't seek out new stuff. But on the flip side, it is hard not to feel that way when you watch a Hong Kong movie. Right. I mean, because they literally actually don't make them like this anymore. And, 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 and so it is it is a a dead genre uh, or dead industry. And. Now we have DNA and disciples and, and stuff, but it's not it's not the same. You know, the closest we get is almost like something like Mission Impossible, which is a two hundred million dollar blockbuster. But at least Tom Cruise is still trying to kill himself, you know. Yes. <laughs> so um, ah, I don't know. Anyway, but uh, yeah, that's it's kind of about I feel like sort of all I, I have left. To oh, add. yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to say like we. we once we once we finish going off topic, I was going to say we, that that brings us to an end. I will, however, just before we go, say I I agree with you that the they don't make them like that anymore. Like I've said it, and yes, you can definitely apply it. But I also feel like there are people in America, in India, who still channel the spirit of those things. And I think the main difference has been is that when indie films in america or europe even try and do it they get nowhere they get tiny budgets nobody watches it and then the people that do watch it we me and you we might like it not always but we might love it uh but a lot of people will just say well i don't see why you're all raving about it and i'm going to give an example here which is arc exodus with johnny young bosch no that's not comparable to a hong kong film but so many people that did watch that were like man it's okay I don't see why you're raving about it. And it's like, we're raving about it because it was made for 30 grand. Like, find me something else that was made for that tiny amount of money that's comparable to any indie film of the last 10, 15 years in the quote-unquote action genre. And all the people that 
used to make those sorts of indie films that were in the style of that are now going over to India and being their action designers or their choreographers or their coordinators, whatever it might be, like Vlad Rinberg. He's a great example. He, he spent forever trying to do that sort of style in American films. And now he's gone off and done a really big Indian film quite recently, I believe. And he's Eric been doing Jacobus. a lot of... Yeah, Eric Jacobus went over there and did the choreography for The Man Who Feels No Pain. Same thing. Yeah, exactly. And all of those people, I think, they're just going where the audience are at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And as the budgets for these get smaller and smaller, you know, and it is funny that you, you brought that up because then when you get the guys, the Marshall Club guys who I love and adore and are definitely keeping that spirit alive and they do everything everywhere all at once and everybody flips for that movie. It's kind of like, well, these guys are doing it and there's a lot of other people doing it too. So, you know, it's so weird that somebody looks at something like Arc Exodus and goes, that's not that impressive, and then flips out over everything everywhere all at once. Now, obviously, that's a much better movie. I mean, that's a tremendous movie. But in terms of the action, flipping out over the action, it's it's all one. It's a small community. Like, if you elevate one, like, elevate the others, because there's not that many people doing this style of action anymore. And a rising tide lifts all boats as long as we let it, you know? I, I agree. Um, I can't comment on uh, everything everywhere all at once because for some unbeknownst reason, the UK was not one of the markets that got a distribution when they first released. We have one now. It's like the middle of May, I think. But obviously, I'm doing my damned hardest to avoid any and all <laughs> information about said film because loads of people saying it's really good. And I was going to see it anyway because I love Michelle Yeoh. But it just really, really winds me up that I still have this problem all these years later. Give me a release date, damn it. <laughs> I hear you, man. I hear you. Trust me. Um, and that's why I didn't want to say any like other spoilers, but I don't think it's a surprise that the Marshall Club guys did the choreography on it. But Oh, uh, no, no. I, I, I'm really happy that those guys have been getting a lot of exposure. I'm right, I think, in saying that they were involved in Shang-Chi as well. Yep, they were in fact. Andy Andy Lay was was the I don't remember the characters in no but I, I know yeah. who you mean um, I knew he was in it but I wasn't sure if the if the rest of them were involved in it or if it was just him but obviously they were in the Paper Tigers as well which I really liked and they've just seemed to have built up to a point now where they're starting to get not mainstream appeal but I feel like they're they're one big film away from getting it you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this one is definitely gonna, gonna blow some doors open for them because it's, it's kind of the, this year's little indie movie that could. It keeps making a bunch of money and everybody really seems to love it, myself included. Um, you know, I, again, no spoilers, but I absolutely flipped shit for the movie. I, I, I went in kind of expecting to hate it, uh, not hate it, but to, to bounce on and no, oh, I, I loved it. I think it's a tremendous movie. So uh, I'm excited for you guys in the UK to finally get it. And on that bombshell, I think that's going to do it for today, folks. I think it's safe to say that we both recommend Time and Tide. It is a weird film. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And objectively, it's well made. And subjectively, we both vibe with it. But I don't think it's for everyone. But I think if you're willing to give it a go and you've never seen it, I'm very, very sorry that you've listened to us talk about it with having no clue what we're going on about. But if that's your thing, I hope you enjoyed it. And I I say you should go and check it out. You can get it from Eureka. You'll be supporting 
a label that needs it and is releasing so much good stuff at the moment that I'm actually struggling to keep up with them. Whereas once upon a time, they were only releasing like one or two films every now and then. Now they seem to be releasing whole handfuls of films all the time. And it's like, I love it, but slow down, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're especially here in the US because I have to import them all. So they cost me a pretty penny when uh, when I have to get them. So I was actually really happy that they announced that Arrow is releasing their running out of time set here in the US as a US release. So I don't have to import that one. Exact same set. It's just going to be distributed in the US by, by Arrow. So that makes me happy. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I second recommend it. Support Eureka. It's a great disc. Um, and yeah, check out Time and Tide. Yep. And with that, I'll hand you back over to me to tell you what we're going to be talking about next week, if there's any follow-up required, and anything else, really. I don't know, because yeah, I'm predicting the future at this point. Later, guys. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, I know I enjoyed editing it and listening. Uh, the one thing I will say is... I'm sorry if my audio does sound a bit weird in places, because maybe it's just me and I'm being paranoid, but it sounded in a couple of places like, I don't know, I just wasn't quite facing the mic properly, or maybe it was the recording software just kind of messed it up a bit, but in a few places, I really did have to fiddle with it to try and get it to sound how I think it should and normally does. But maybe that's just me, which is why I said it at the outro and not the intro, because I didn't want to put that thought into your head before you listen to it. So feel free to let me know uh, if you thought it was bad or if you think I'm just being paranoid. Thank you once again to Mike for coming on to the show. It was an absolute blast. We always have fun time whenever we talk about films. And it's always nice to have people on that no matter what is going on in the real world, no matter what things people might be dealing with, you can always have x person on and you know you're going to have a great time talking about films most of the guests that i've had on especially the repeat guests they fall into that category that's why we have them back and you know the fact that they're free and available uh some people i am trying to get back that uh, haven't yet made a return but trying to sync up schedules man it's a challenge as i said in the episode both vice and liam who are his action for everyone co-hosts have both been trying to sync up our schedules to get them on this show one day we will make it happen and i'm very much looking forward to that but it is not going to be next week because next week there won't be a guest no it's going to be just me like it was for the inaugural episode of conan and uh i'm kind of excited that it's going to be just me again because i haven't done it for a while i really really wasn't expecting to go this many episodes and not have a problem getting a guest. When I first started the show, I really didn't know how much of a response I would get in terms of having people on. And the more I thought about it, and the fact that this is kind of the end of recordings from before we went away, I was like, this feels like a good point to have a solo episode. And the film that we're going to talk about is actually a film that I talk about in this episode, or more specifically, Mike talks about because it is going to be everything everywhere all at once i did see it in the middle of may and i've watched it again since then uh this week in fact i fully agree with mike that this is a fantastic film and i can't wait to talk about it and the thing is the more i thought about it the more i'm like you know what 
I think I've got a lot to say about this film. So much so, in fact, that I'm just going to do it myself. And, you know, every now and then I will probably do that with certain films. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it. So I hope you'll join me for that one. I find it so funny when I was listening back to this to edit that me and Mike were talking about it when I had already decided that that was going to be the next one. I haven't filmed it yet. So uh, I always say filmed, I mean recorded. I haven't recorded it yet. So I will literally be doing this in the future at the time of recording this intro, which is why I'm like, there are no more episodes at the moment. I am literally going to be making the next batch over the course of the next week. But maybe this time I won't go quite so crazy. So you won't have quite so many episodes that feel like they were recorded a long time ago. But we'll see if a handful of people all suddenly start getting back to me that they're free next week or the week after, I will probably be in the same position where I have like eight episodes ready to go real quick. (laughs) Either way, guys, I hope you are looking forward to next week's episode and I really hope you enjoyed this week's. It was an absolute pleasure, as always, to talk to Mike. I will see you very soon. Thank you for listening to the very end. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you in the next one. On the action.